Let's just pray together before we, we start. Father, we do pray that you'll teach us from your word. Lord, that what we hear will make a difference. Lord, we pray that we'll hit up against the reality of Jesus. <clears throat> Lord, that we'll come to know him better. And Lord, that he'll have more and more sway in our lives. And Lord, that you'll enable us to come more and more into submission to his authority. So, Father, lead us now, we pray. Because we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, we come tonight to the 17th talk in this series that we're doing on salvation. We're giving it a real clean sweep. You know, everything you ever wanted to know about salvation, but were afraid to ask. And the bit we're on at the moment, we've looked at what I've called past salvation. We've covered the whole area about what it means to be delivered from the penalty of sin. And we've now moved on and we're in what I've called present salvation. In that now that God has saved us from the penalty of sin, he then wants to be moving in our lives to set us free from the penalty of sin. Uh, for, sorry, from the power of sin in our lives. And this is where we're at at the moment. The whole area, if you like, of what the Bible calls sanctification, to use the jargon word. And tonight we come to the second of two talks on the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And you remember that last time, what we did is we went through the scriptures and we saw firstly that the Bible teaches that the baptism with the Spirit is clearly a separate experience from conversion. And by looking at the various feasts in the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfilled them, we saw in fact that the baptism with the Holy Spirit was far more than just simply allowing us to share the power of the Holy Spirit but we saw it was quite specifically to enable us to play our part within the corporate body of Christ. So last week we covered what the baptism in the Spirit was, we, we saw the significance of it, but this week we're going to move on and we're going to ask, okay, we know what it is, but what does it do? What exactly happens when you're baptised with the Spirit? What effect does it have on you from that point in your Christian life? Onwards. Now that's what we're going to look at tonight, and we're going to do it by looking at four of the symbols in the Bible for the Holy Spirit. There are many more symbols than four, but we are just going to look at four of them. So turn firstly, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. <coughs> Acts chapter 2. And we'll start reading from verse 1. This was the occasion when the early church, the disciples of Jesus, were baptised with the Spirit for the first time. Acts chapter 2, and we'll start reading from verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, <coughs> a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now there are two symbols there. The sound like the rush of a mighty wind and tongues as of fire. So the wind and the fire. We'll start first of all with the wind. Now in the Bible, the significance of the symbolism of the wind is always the presence and the power of of God. This is always what the power of the wind represents, the power and presence of God. You remember when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, and we saw this in great detail when we did the tape about being born again earlier on in the series. We saw that Jesus said, the wind blows where it will, and you hear the sound of it, and that Jesus likens the moving of the Holy Spirit to the blowing of the wind, the moving of the wind across the face of the earth. And interestingly enough, in both Greek and in Hebrew, you have the same word for wind as spirit. For instance, in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for wind is ruach, and that is the same word for spirit. And in the Greek language, pneuma is the word for spirit and for wind. And so we see the significance of the wind as representing the power and the presence of God, the moving of his Holy Spirit. What I want us to do is just take 
two or three things that if, if you understand these things about the wind, you can understand these things about the Holy Spirit as well and how he moves. <clears throat> First thing about the wind is this, it's sudden and it's unexpected. You never know when the wind is going to blow. Now, if you read through the Gospels, you can see quite clearly the example of Jesus and the miracles that he worked. I mean, one minute he could be standing there talking to somebody or preaching, and I mean, that was all kind of normal. And the next minute he turns around and he works a miracle. Can you see? They couldn't contain him. They never knew what Jesus was going to do next. And this is exactly the way it is with the Holy Spirit today. Now, whereas it's true <coughs> that God we know this from the Bible, is never the author of confusion. It's important to understand that God will never be the author of confusion, but he is the greatest instigator of the surprising and the unexpected that you'll ever meet. God loves doing things which surprise people. And what we must be concerned about, given that God can move so freely and differently any time that he wants, we, as his people must always be willing to follow at a moment's notice. Do you remember when God was leading his Old Testament people through the wilderness? The way that he guided them was that there was this pillar of fire. And at night, the pillar was a fire, and in the daytime, it was a pillar of cloud. And that represented God's presence with them at that time. And what happened was that as this pillar of cloud or fire moved, so the Israelites would follow where it went. And as soon as it stopped, they, they camped. You know, they laid out the camp and they stayed there. But the moment that it moved on, down came the camp, off they went and followed it. And they were often in the, into the situation where they'd been moving a lot, following the, the pillar, and then suddenly it stopped. And they, they'd make camp and think, oh, this is great. And they'd be there for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And then they wake up one morning and the pillar was moving and down come the camp, off they go. Then, a time later, it has stopped, they settle down, and I think, oh, you know, great, put our feet up. Next morning it's moving again, and they were off. Can you see, we must be willing to follow at any moment. We must never get too secure in any one situation that God has placed us into. All the time, we have to be flexible. We, as God's people have got to be willing for change at any time as God leads. But a qualification to that must obviously be that any change that seems to be occurring, that you test it by the Bible. I'm talking about being flexible here, not gullible. Obviously, any change that is occurring must be tested by the Bible. But assuming it passed the test, then off we go. We have to be quite prepared at any moment to up and follow the Lord, to make changes, to never settle in a way where this is how we do it and this is the way we're always going to do it. The institutional churches did that. Look at them now. We must be ready at any point to follow and implement the changes that God is leading us to. So then, that's the first thing. The wind is sudden and unexpected. So is the Holy Spirit. We must be flexible or we're simply going to miss out on what he's doing. Now a second thing about the wind is this, it's blatantly felt and experienced. You stand outside on a windy day, you feel the wind, you experience the wind subjectively. I think it's fascinating that here in Acts 2, when the disciples were baptised with the Holy Spirit, uh, that all the people who were standing around thought that they were drunk, they thought they were plastered, blotto. And, and it's fascinating as well that in Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, it is interesting, although not holy enough for some, that the Bible gives drunkenness as being almost a counterfeit picture of being baptised with the Spirit. The baptism in the Spirit is likened to drunkenness. Think about it with me. When you get drunk, a spirit, alcohol, that was outside of you, gets inside of you and makes you act in a way that you wouldn't normally. Now, I can't think of a better description of the Christian life than that. Can you? 
When the Holy Spirit gets into you and makes you act in a way that you wouldn't normally. Now, can you see that drunkenness is in fact a satanic counterfeit to being baptised with the Spirit? And the beautiful thing is that when you're filled with the Spirit, there's no need to go out and get drunk because we have something that's so much better than that. And of course, one of the things that the Holy Spirit wants to do is that he wants to effect an emotional release in us. Now, I'm not talking here about emotionalism, I'm not talking about going over the top or anything like that. <clears throat> but you see, the problem with us in this country is that we're Brits. And our problem is not the tendency to go over the top. Our problem is inherently the stiff upper lip and holding back. Now, think about it. Jesus, in his life, knew what it was to jump up and down with praise. Do you remember when Peter... Uh, sort of said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus prayed, and he said, Lord, I thank you that, that you've revealed this to babes and that. And you can almost feel Jesus jumping up and down with joy. He was so happy that Peter had eventually clicked who he was. He knew great joy, and he could express it. Jesus was also quite capable of weeping in public. He was not emotionally inhibited at all. Jesus was also quite free to get very, very angry. Now, can you see, we need a release in our emotional lives. We need the Holy Spirit to set us free so that we can, in his time and his way, become feeling people. We tend to forget God has feelings. It's very easy to forget that. You know, in the old prayer book, one of the statements of faith is sort of that God is without passions. And I think that historically that has kind of thrown a lot of people because the ancient use of that word passions means uncontrolled feelings. All right. Now, God is always in control of himself. That's why he never blows his top. God never does his crust or anything like that because the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. But nevertheless, God does have feelings. And we are created in his image. And feelingness, emotions are part of our heritage as human beings, and that the Holy Spirit, just gently, in the way in which he wants to, for each one of us, to set us free emotionally. But remember as well, that for many of us who do tend to hold back, we, we find it very, very hard to show outward praise or joy at the Lord. But it's not very difficult to let someone know that you're cross with them, is it? You see. Now, can you see our emotions need completely rearranging? Because we're free in expressing the negative ones, but we're bound in expressing the right ones. Now, we need the Holy Spirit to effect that release in our lives as well. And then the third thing about the wind is this. Plants use the wind to spread their seeds and to propagate life. So that plants, in order to survive, they've got to get their seeds out there into fresh soil. But... You know, but I mean, a plant can't go walkies and drop his seeds all over the place, can he, or anything like that? So the only way they can do it is to use the wind, all right? <laughs> now then, I want you to picture what happens when the wind blows, all right, and you've got a little seed sitting on the, you know, on a petal of the plant, all right, and the wind blows. Now this little seed, all right, is a little bit insecure, it is, you see. And that what it does is sitting there all comfortably in the petals, you know, stuff. It's lovely, absolutely lovely it is. And then suddenly the wind starts to blow and the plant starts to shake. Now this little seed doesn't like it, he gets a little bit insecure. And what he does is he holds on tight. And the more the wind blows and the more the plant sways, the more this seed hangs on with all its might. And then... Once the wind abates, it thinks, oh, it's safe now, and it lets go and drops off. <laughs> now, can you see? <laughs> All it will do is fall at the feet of its parent, and it'll die. Because the parent is using the soil that that seed falls into. Now, can you see the number of Christians and churches that are like that? The wind of the Spirit rocks them a bit. The wind of the Spirit blows into their situation. You know, the plant kind of starts to sway. And what do they do? They hang on with all their might. They won't let go. They won't let the Spirit take them. And then when the Spirit moves on, because he will, he will, he'll move on. If he doesn't get any response, he'll move on. Then as soon as the Holy Spirit's gone, they all let go and say, right now, then let's, let's get on with the Lord's work. And they haven't even noticed that the Holy Spirit's gone. Can you see, we have got to be willing to let go and to throw ourselves on the wind of the Holy Spirit. We have nothing to fear. 
It's insecure, yes, because you never know where the Holy Spirit's going to end you up. But on the other hand, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. He loves us. He has only our good in mind. Can you see how crazy it is to hide from the Holy to close up when the Holy Spirit's around? We want to open ourselves to Him and throw ourselves, abandon ourselves to the moving of the Holy Spirit. Because only then are we going to really experience the life of Jesus amongst us. Let me just say one other thing here about people who hold back and people who kind of are a bit over the top. Because it's very, very easy for the people who hold back to look at the people who let go and maybe end up going a bit over the top. And that's always a risk. There's a risk in everything you do. But it's very easy for the people who hold back to look at the people who really go for it but make mistakes and say, oh, well, we knew that that would be, you know, we knew that was dodgy to do that, you see. Well, let me remind you, it's far easier to cool down a hothead than to warm up a corpse. And most of us are suffering from the latter problem. The churches today is full of Christian cadavers. And they're kind of sitting there, rotting quietly in their pews. But we need a bit more life. We need a little bit more of going over the top. Now, this, the wind, this aspect, the wind of the Holy Spirit, is that which brings us the supernatural manifestation of God's power. It's the wind of the Spirit that brings to us the gifts of the Holy Spirit and begins to release us in the ministries that he has for us. But whereas the wind blows about us and is external, and in a very real way miracles and the gifts of the Spirit are all external, whereas the wind blows about us, the fire, which is the second symbol that we're going to look at, burns in us. It's an inside thing. Now, the great problem with the baptism with the Holy Spirit is that people have tended to preach half of it. And it's been a great mistake. People have preached the baptism with the Spirit as if it is only concerned with power and gifts of the Spirit and miracles. It's not. The wind is one symbol for the Holy Spirit, but the fire is another, which we now move on to. Remember at Pentecost, tongues as of fire. Now, throughout the Bible, fire is always a symbol of the holiness of God and his judgment upon sin. Alright? And that includes in us too as believers. <coughs> we have seen how, because we are children of God, that he will discipline us. We've seen that there's a judgment on us as the sons of God. Now that judgment has got nothing to do with condemnation or anything like that, but simply that because we're God's children, he will sort us out he will bring us up properly. And we saw a few studies back in the talk, the judgment for believers, that there was a definite time for being blessed by the laying on of hands at the other end, didn't we? And so therefore, we're seeing here that the fire is a picture of God's judgment on sin in our lives. Remember in Luke 3 and verse 16, and also in the Matthew account, when John the Baptist is witnessing to Jesus, he says, He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And in Hebrews 12, verse 29, we're told, Our God is a consuming fire. So we must be aware that to be baptised with the Holy Spirit is most certainly to receive power for the gifts of the Spirit and witnessing to Jesus. But it is also to receive the fire of the Holy Spirit, which begins to burn in your heart. Now that fire is there to burn away impurity and sin. That fire is there to cleanse us inside of all the things in us that are wrong. The truly spirit-filled Christian life is a life of ever-increasing conviction of sin and true repentance an ever-increasing experience of getting our lives more and more sorted out before the Lord. Do you remember when Isaiah started his ministry? And if you read Isaiah's book, if you read the first five chapters, you have a man whose ministry can be summed up in, in a few words, woe unto everyone. Isaiah told them what they were doing wrong. He told them what they were doing wrong. He condemned those over there for what they were doing wrong. And it was all dead right. It was all the word of the Lord. He was a spirit-filled man. But you see, the great problem with Isaiah 
is that's as far as he got, telling people what they were doing wrong. Oh, actually, it's quite interesting. I was doing a bit of research into Isaiah the other day, and I found out, in fact, how he got his name. It's quite fascinating. Legend have it, this, this could be apocryphal, but legend has it that when he was born, he had a really bad birth. And you know that some babies, when they're born, their head's a little bit lopsided, but later it corrects itself. Well, his never did. And so all the time, he had one eye's higher than the other. You see? <laughs> oh, forget that. Um, <laughs> and that you'll remember that, that, that suddenly... <laughs> and you'll remember that suddenly... <laughs> He, he was taken up into heaven and he had a vision of Jesus in all his glory. And that there, confronted with Jesus himself, Isaiah was no longer merely pronouncing a woe upon other people's sins. But he said, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And that what happened, do you remember an angel got a burning coal from a fire that was there and touched his lips? Now that represented the fire of God sorting Isaiah out because he was a man who was quite rightly preaching against other people's sins but quite wrongly failing to realize that he was as bad as they were he was merely a beggar who had found some food telling another beggar who hadn't where he could go and get it can you see God was sorting him out and this flaming coal the idea of fire is in there the fire of the Holy Spirit. But when you do get baptised with the Spirit, I want you to understand this, that the fire of the Holy Spirit comes and there's an initial flare-up and then that settles to a lower but more constant burning. Think of it like striking a match. When you strike a match, initially it flares up. But the only reason that it does flare up is to get the wood burning. Once the wood has ignited, the flare-up ends, but the flame then burns at a, a less dramatic but more consistent rate. Now, this is the warning to anyone who wants to live on experiences. There are many charismatic, inverted commas, Christians who seem to think that the Christian life is going from one miraculous experience of the Holy Spirit to another. It isn't. They're trying to live on a constant flare-up and you cannot do it in any way at all. Um, I can remember when uh, I used to live in the country and it was all open fires, that sort of when you get the paper and the kindling wood on and then the coal, when you first light the fire, the, the flames are very, very apparent. You know, that, that's the dramatic time. They're all leaping around and everything like that. You get the flare up, but the fire isn't giving out any heat at that point. It's only when the coal has ignited, the flames are gone and you get a constant glowing that you really get heat given out. Now can you see that? Many Christians want the flames and the excitement. We need in our lives the constant ongoing heat, if you like, being given out of the Holy Spirit. So it's, a constant, it's, it's an initial flare-up, but only to get a constant burning at a lower level. And of course, this constant burning is to do two things. To burn out our sinfulness and to burn in the life and the holiness of Jesus in its place. And then another thing about fire is this. You can put it out, can't you? Fire can be quenched. And indeed, Paul the Apostle says, do not quench the spirit. You see, the problem is this. If you light a match... Once it's burnt, you can't relight it. When something has been burned, it won't burn anymore. It's consumed. There'll be no more flame. Now, the point is this. The Holy Spirit systematically goes through our lives, knocking on each door, saying, I want to come in and burn that room up and everything that's wrong with it. All right? Now, the point is this. Imagine the Holy Spirit. He knocks on a door in your life and you say no. All right? Say no, you're not going to come in. Now, the Holy Spirit will respect your free will. But because the Holy Spirit has already burned up all the rooms he's already been in, he can't go on to another one because he said that this one is next, even though you won't let him in, and he won't move on to do something else. Therefore, there's nothing to burn, is there? The Holy Spirit is quenched, and the flame just goes down to a very, very minute flicker, you see. 
Therefore, that is why, even though you can be filled with the Spirit, you can still be pretty empty of the Spirit. Can you see the flame can go out to the tiniest flicker? And you can be out of fellowship with God, even though you have been baptised with the Holy Spirit. So therefore, it's only as we are living in continuous surrender to the Spirit, only as we open each area of our life where he, that he pinpoints. Now, don't decide what areas of your life you think he ought to do. Let the Holy Spirit do you in the order he wants to. And don't try and dictate the order he sorts other people out in. But the point is that we must constantly be responding to whatever part of our lives the Holy Spirit is trying to sort out at any one moment in time. Remember again what I said about the fire, that once the flames have consumed the coal, then it goes, settles down to a much hotter, glowing. And remember Paul says in Romans 12:11, be aglow with the Holy Spirit. Mm. This is exactly what we want. That if we live right before God in continual repentance and surrender, then not only are we going to be open <coughs> to the gifts of the Spirit coming through us, and the power of God being revealed in us. But we are also going to be like walking little glowworm fires that the people in that cold, harsh world out there can gather around and say, hey, this is nice. I like this. It's cold in my life. It's so warm in yours. What have you got that I haven't? Can you see? That's finally the way that you bring people to Jesus, by letting them see that you're different to other people because he has changed you. And of course it's this, the fire of the Holy Spirit, which brings to us what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit, as outlined in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, long, etc, etc. Now, also, in regards to the fruits of the Spirit, we're talking about the character of Jesus. It's the life of Jesus himself. And, and there's not kind of nine fruits of the Spirit. There's only one fruit of the Spirit, but there are nine different flavours. But when you put them all together, they equal love. And of course, love is of God, and God is love. It's through the burning of the Holy Spirit that the life of Jesus can be revealed through us. But, because it's a continuous, ongoing process, it takes time. It quite simply takes time. Uh, let me tell you about instant soup. If you want a cup of instant soup, all right, you, 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 you pour the soup in, you boil your water, you pour it on, and there's your instant soup. Let me tell you about instant sanctification. There isn't any. It's not instant. There's nothing instant in the Christian life. The only thing that is instant in the Christian life is that when you believed on Jesus, he came to live in you. But there's nothing instant about marriage either, is it? It's an ongoing thing. This instant mentality that we've got is very bad. I've said it here before. God's not growing a back room full of mushrooms. He's growing a forest of oaks. But it takes a little bit longer. So therefore, this symbol of the Holy Spirit, the fire, represents the holiness of God being revealed in our lives. But it does take time. Let's move on to the third symbol. Go to John. John's Gospel and chapter 1. John's Gospel, chapter 1. And this is another little dippy into the ministry of John the Baptist. You remember when he was witnessing to Jesus... And um, we'll start reading from verse 32. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend as a dove from heaven, and it remained on him. This is John speaking about the baptism of Jesus, and how when Jesus was baptised in water, the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove. Now, in the Bible, the symbol, the dove, is a symbol of peace. And when Jesus was baptised in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit came down upon him as a dove, the symbol of peace. You see, because Jesus was always inherently at peace with God, because he was God. Can you see in that sense, there was no need for wind at Jesus' baptism, because we're told in Corinthians that he is the power of God. And there was certainly no need for fire at Jesus' baptism, because he was the sinless Son of God. And so here, when Jesus is baptised, we see the Holy Spirit come upon him as a dove, symbolising peace. And what we see here is tremendously important, because thus far I have been talking an awful lot 
about the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit himself doesn't mind that. But if I didn't say what I'm going to say now, he would start to get a little bit edgy. And the reason is this. The Holy Spirit finally only wants to do one thing. And it's not to glorify himself at all. It's to glorify Jesus. Jesus is absolutely central to the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the baptism with the Holy Spirit. In John 16 verse 14, Jesus, talking about the Holy Spirit, says this, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Can you see, that's what the Holy Spirit has come to do, simply to reveal Jesus. Again, in John 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus says this, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth. Now, there are three things in that verse that we can quickly look at. First of all, Jesus says, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counsellor which is going to be the Holy Spirit. Now, that word another is interesting. There are different words in the Greek for another, all right? Now then, for instance, say you had a Honda Accord over here and a Toyota Celica over there. If you pointed to the Honda Accord and said, there's a car, and then you pointed to the Celica and said, there is another car, that Greek word is heteros. And it means another, but of a different kind. Because it's not a Honda Accord, it's a, it's a Toyota Celica. That is not the word used here. The word used here is alos, and it will be like this. Imagine that you had a Porsche 928 over here and a Porsche 928 over there. You see what sort of cars I like, aren't you? We've got a Porsche 928 over here, another one over there. Now, you point to one and say, there's a car. You then point to another one and you say, there's another car. Now, that would be in Greek, alos, and it means another of exactly the same kind. Now, that is the Greek word that Jesus uses here. So, when he talks about the Holy Spirit coming as a counsellor, he says that the Holy Spirit will be a counsellor in exactly the same way as I am. Also, this word counsellor or comforter, it depends what version you've got. <coughs> the Greek word is paraclete, and it means one who comes alongside. And in fact, it's a legal term for a defence lawyer, someone there to help you out when you're in trouble. But it's exactly the same word that was used in John's epistle when he says, in 1 John 2 verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that word advocate is, advocate is paraclete. It's exactly the same word. So here, the word that Jesus uses of the Holy Spirit being a comforter is exactly the same word that the Bible uses of Jesus being our advocate with the Father. All right. And then, thirdly, the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, he says he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So the Holy Spirit is going to be with us forever, but... It was Jesus who says in Matthew 28, verse 20, Lo, I am with you to the close of the age. Can you see what Jesus is teaching here about the Holy Spirit? He is simply saying that the Holy Spirit was going to be the means that he came back to the church once he had bodily ascended back to his Father in heaven. So what we see is this. There is no experience of the Holy Spirit which is not an experience of Jesus himself. And every and any experience of the Holy Spirit will make us more aware of Jesus and more aware, not of the Holy Spirit at all, but of the Lordship and the glory of Jesus himself. The Holy Spirit doesn't, in fact, want to be emphasised at all. I said a few minutes ago that he was quite happy that I'd been talking about him a lot. But that's because he knew that I was going to get to the point of demonstrating that all he wanted to do was to glorify Jesus. If I'd done a whole study on the Holy Spirit without mentioning that the whole point of it is to glorify Jesus, then the Holy Spirit would have been most unhappy. He wouldn't have blessed this study. Can you see, it's all the Holy Spirit wants to do. He wants to take a completely back seat. And the only time the Holy Spirit is happy to be mentioned 
or centred on at all, is only insofar as teaching people that he wants to glorify Jesus. Can you see, apart from that, the Holy Spirit wants to keep right out of it. The Holy Spirit is the backroom boy of the Trinity. That's amazing. Can you see his humility? I mean, this is incredible. The Holy Spirit doesn't want publicity. All he wants to do is to glorify Jesus and to show everyone how wonderful Jesus is. And it was C.H. Spurgeon, who is often quite quotable, and he said this, I looked at Jesus and the dove of peace flew into my heart. I looked at the dove of peace and he flew away. And that is exactly what the Holy Spirit will do. If we ever home in on him, he'll be off. But if we look to Jesus, if we glorify Jesus, if we lift Jesus high, if we show Jesus forth in our lives, then the Holy Spirit will be with us in such a powerful way because then our will is going to be exactly the same as the Holy Spirit's will. He wants to glorify Jesus, so if you want to glorify Jesus, he'll help you. But something else as well. The Holy Spirit doesn't want to be glorified, but neither does he want us to be glorified either. And it's very easy to use your Christian life to get attention. It's tremendously easy to fall into the trap of putting yourself centre stage. It's, there's a very thin line, for instance, it's good to tell people what the Lord has done for you. That's, that's beautiful. Because when you tell people what the Lord has done for you, you're telling people how wonderful Jesus is. But there's a terribly subtle way in which you can tell people what Jesus has done for you, with the emphasis being that he's done it on you, for you. Can you see? That's terrible. I've known Christians who spend their time swapping dramatic stories about what Jesus has done for them, outdoing each other with their testimony. That's a dreadful thing, but it's very, very frequent. The Holy Spirit does not want to glorify us. He only wants to glorify Jesus. So can you see, it's only as we are prepared to take a back seat with the Holy Spirit that he is going to be willing to fill us and to use us and to bless us and enable us to live the Christian lives that we ought to be living. Let's go on to the third, fourth symbol now. And we're going to answer the question, well, right, so how do you get baptised in the Spirit? Go to Ezekiel 47. Good old Ezekiel. I have no jokes about Ezekiel's name because I can't think of any. I do apologise for that. I know how Nehemiah got his name. Do you want to know how Nehemiah got his name? We're not doing Nehemiah. <laughs> Nehemiah now, this is amazing. You're remembering the story of Nehemiah, how he organised for the wall to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And <clears throat> all the time he was trying to do it, there were various Jews and Gentiles who were trying to stop them. But eventually, they finished the wall, and, Ezekiel, and, um, and Nehemiah went back to where he used to live. But a while later, he came back to Jerusalem to see how they were getting on. And he found that all these characters who had tried to stop the rebuilding of the wall had been given houses in the wall, because in the ancient cities, they had houses in the walls around the city. And Nehemiah was so outraged also that Jews had been marrying Gentiles, which they weren't supposed to do. And that Nehemiah was so outraged that he literally went in these people's houses and he dragged them outside, quite literally, and he gave them a beating. If you read the end of the book of Nehemiah, you'll see. Nehemiah, re genuinely, he openly gave them what for? He gave them a beating because he was so angry. Now, of course, what was happening is while he was doing this, all the Jews were gathering around cheering him on. And they would say, go on, Nehemiah, Nehemiah. <laughs> oh, well, it's worth a try, isn't it? Anyway, let's, let's return to Ezekiel. <laughs> Find Ezekiel and chapter 47. And what we're going to read here is a vision that Ezekiel has of the Millennial Temple. All right? So, in a sense, he's taken forward in time, because the Millennial Temple hasn't been built even yet. <clears throat> he's taken forward in time and given a vision of this temple. And as we read through this, we're going to see the fourth of the symbols for the Holy Spirit. And we're going to answer the question, how do you get baptised? What happened? How do you go about getting baptised in the Spirit? Now, this is an angel who's showing him round. 
Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. And the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate, and led me round on the outside to the outer gate that faces towards the east, and the water was coming out on the south side. Going on eastward with a line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, and it was up to the loins. And again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back along the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw the bank of the river, very many trees along it, on the one side and on the other. And he says, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah. And when it enters the stagnant waters of the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the, the river goes, every living creature which swarms will live, and there will be very many fish, for this water goes there, and the waters of the sea may become fresh, so that everything will live where the river goes. And he just goes on talking about the life that this river that issues from the temple brings wherever it goes. Now, what you've got to understand here, you've got to get the picture. Ezekiel, he goes round the temple, and he sees this little bit of water, an ankle deep, a little rivulet, a tiny little stream that is issuing from the altar. Now, he gets in it, and it's up to the ankles. Now, what you've got to understand is that as soon as he does that, this stream, this river, is representing the Holy Spirit. Do you remember Jesus when he was teaching about the Holy Spirit, he says that to him who thirsts, out of him shall flow rivers of living water. Well, here they are symbolised in the Millennial Temple. Now, Ezekiel gets in, and it's up to his ankles. And he's walking in the same direction as the river. Now, can you see, he's in the river, he is in the Spirit. Alright? And also, he's going the right way. He's, he's moving with the Spirit, no problem. So he keeps walking, all right? And as he keeps going in the same direction as the river's flowing, eventually it comes up to his knees. Can you see he's in the spirit a bit more now, and he's still going in the right direction? Well, he walks a bit further. Now it's getting up to his waist. Now there's a little bit of a struggle that's coming now. Because he's noticing that although he's in the river, he's in the spirit, and although he's going the same way as the river, he's following faithfully after the Lord. He's noticing that he's got a bit of a struggle with the river itself. The river is kind of pushing him forward a little bit faster than he wants to go. But nevertheless, it's a struggle. It's a struggle, but he keeps going, keeping his feet on the ground. He goes in a little bit deeper. Now the water's right up to his neck. Now, can you see what's happening? He's suddenly got into the situation that can be described in this way. Up to now, Ezekiel is a believer. He's in the spirit. He's following the Lord. He is in the river, and he's going the right way. But the whole time, he is controlling his walk in the river. He is controlling his speed. He is controlling his position in the river. In short, Ezekiel is in charge. He is still his own boss. Now, the deeper he goes with the Lord, the harder this becomes. Because his main fight then becomes with the river itself. Because the river is trying to push him over, but he's fighting because he wants to keep his feet on the ground. And it's very easy to live the Christian life with your feet on the, on the bed of the river. You're in the river, you're following the Lord, you're in the Spirit, but you are in control. Ezekiel then comes to the point where one more step, and you know what's going to happen? The river is going to sweep him off of his feet. He is going to lose all control over his Christian life. He is going to be then carried along by the river. All the decisions as to his speed and position in the river being taken not by him, but by the river itself. I.e., one more step, he is going to have his feet swept off the riverbed. He is going to lose complete control of his life. He is going to be absolutely submerged, immersed, baptised in the river, in the Holy Spirit. 
Now, can you see what the baptism of the Spirit is? The baptism in the Spirit is because God wants to kick our feet off the riverbed and take control. It's because it's not enough to have been born again. It's not enough to have believed on Jesus. Well, it's enough to have believed on Jesus as Saviour to be saved from the penalty of sin and go to heaven. But it is not enough to have just believed on Jesus as Saviour to be a disciple. There, you've got to surrender to Jesus as Lord. You've got to hand over control of your life to Him. You've got to abandon yourself to the control of the Holy Spirit. And that is what the baptism in the Spirit does to you. It's to be immersed in the very life and power of the Holy Spirit so that He is in control and not you. In other, in other words, we're talking about bowing the knee to Jesus as Lord. When He becomes boss, not in theory, not as a doctrine, but in reality, when Jesus actually becomes our Lord and actually has the final say in everything that we do and everything that we are. Which means when Jesus says no, then he answers no. If Jesus says do it, you do it. Because your life has been handed over to him. You're immersed in that river. The river is in control of your life. That's what the spirit-filled Christian life is. There's something else interesting, because in this vision that Ezekiel has here in chapter 47, this little stream issues from the altar in the temple. And the altar is the place of death. And we've seen in the last study that again with the baptism in the Spirit, we're talking death to self. We're talking about dying to what we want. We're talking about dying to what we do. We're talking about dying to our plans and ambitions. We're talking only of Jesus living through us and Jesus having his way in our lives. So that's the first thing. This river, to be submerged, to be baptised in the river of the Holy Spirit, is to die to yourself. So if you don't want that, you don't want the Holy Spirit. I mean, Pete, you know, if you want to get baptised in the Spirit because you fancy the gifts of the Spirit, that's no good reason. That's no good reason. The reason for being baptised with the Spirit is recognising that Jesus is Lord and that you want that to become an actual living reality in your life. But there's something else as well. Because this river, wherever it flows, it brings life. Now, given that we know exactly where this temple is going to be eventually erected in Jerusalem, and we can plot the course of this river flowing out from the altar, and that wherever it goes, it ends up in this great sea and there's an abundance of life. Do you know which sea it is? It's the Dead Sea. In this vision, the river flowing from the temple brings the Dead Sea to life. Now, what is the Dead Sea? Remember, the Dead Sea is so salty, nothing can live in it. What is the Dead Sea that God calls us to flow into? It's a lost world. And as we are filled with the Spirit, as we allow the Holy Spirit to sweep us along, then we are going to bring life to the dead world around us, to those who are still dead in their trespasses and in their sins. We're going to bring life to them so that they too can come to know Jesus and know what it is to have a new life. Now also in regards to the Holy Spirit, you get baptised with the Spirit initially as a one-off thing, in exactly the same way that you get married initially as a one-off thing. But you then enter into a continuous, ongoing experience. In Ephesians 5.18, we've already seen, do you remember when Paul says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit? Well, that's written in a Greek tense that, that you can't really translate properly into English, because the Greeks have a tense that we don't. But broadly speaking, what it says is, do not be drunk with wine, but be being filled with the Spirit. Not just do it once off, it's a continuous process of continuously being filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, Dwight L. Moody, the evangelist of last century, was asked once, Brother Moody, are you filled with the Spirit? And he says, yes, but I leak. <laughs> now, that's the problem that we all have. All of us leak the whole time. Every time we sin, we leak. Every time we doubt the Lord, we leak. Every time we give in to fear, we leak. Now this is why we must be living in continuous, ongoing repentance before God. So that we're always bunging up the holes in us. So that the Holy Spirit doesn't leak out too much. 
Remember 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. A spirit-filled life is continuous, ongoing confession and repentance. In order for the Holy Spirit to fill us more and more, there's got to be less and less of us. I heard a lovely story once of a woman who was uh, planning to start taking meetings in her house, you see. Yeah, she was a Christian. And uh, she was sort of like at this church, but they started up house meetings. And, uh, you know, she, she volunteered the use of her house. And uh, her non-Christian neighbour was sort of tremendously interested, and she had told her all about it, you see. And so the day after the first meeting, she went out into the garden, and her neighbour was there. And she said, oh, how'd your meeting go? She said, oh, it was great. Had 25 people there. Couldn't get anyone else in. Oh, we were full, you see. Anyway, after... The next week, she had another meeting. Next day, she went out, and her neighbour was there in the garden. Oh, how'd your meeting go? She said, oh, it was great. There were 35 people there. Oh, couldn't get anyone else in. It was full up. See, Another week went by to another meeting, and she went out in the garden. The next morning, her neighbour was there. She said, how'd your meeting go last night? I said, oh, a trip. We had 50 there. Couldn't get anyone else in. She said, hang on, hang on. The first meeting, you had 25, and you say you were full. The second meeting, you had 35. You said... Now last night you had 50 and now you're full. What's going on? And she says, oh, well, I'm moving the furniture out. Now that's exactly what being filled with the Spirit is. There's furniture in our lives which has to be continuously being moved out. Can you see? All the sins which God pinpoints, the things that are wrong with us, He wants to move them out of our lives, mm. thus making room for more of the Holy Spirit so that we are filled all the time in an increasing measure. Just end on this. <coughs> What's the qualification then for being baptised with the Spirit? We've seen what it is, we've seen what it does to you, what it leads to. We've seen how you get baptised with the Spirit. I ask God to kick you off your feet, you know, so that he's in control. But what's the condition? Because there is a condition. And there are lots of Christians who truly want to be baptised with the Spirit, but they're not because they don't fulfil the condition. And the condition is incredibly stringent. You must meet this condition to the letter. But if you do, then you can be baptised with the Spirit. Now the condition of being baptised with the Spirit is this. You've got to be a failure. And that's why many people don't get baptised with the Spirit. Because they're successful Christians. They haven't realised that they're failures. So if you're a failure, you qualify for being baptised with the Spirit. If you're not a failure, you don't qualify for being baptised with the Spirit. I know which I was, that's why I got baptised with the Spirit. There's very little doubt in my own mind. Can you see the importance of us being baptised in the Holy Spirit? And the vitally important part it plays in our lives. If we are to know and experience the reality, the ongoing reality, of being set free from the power of sin in our lives. Right, we will end it there and continue next time.